first through the book. There's no better time to learn that thing than now because you've got prophecy that was put down in the book of Revelation that's happening as we speak. So this will be a great time of uh, getting to understand that and being able to witness to people. Like the mark of the beast. What is that? You've got a cashless system that's talked about in the book of Revelation. You see it coming about. Now last week we went through Daniel chapter 2. Now, the only way that you can really understand the book of Revelation, because it's in symbolic language, is to go back to the Old Testament and see where some of those symbols are used and see how they were interpreted. That way, you can go to the book of Revelation and get a great understanding of it. Now, last week, we looked at Daniel chapter 2, and we looked at the idol, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Does anybody need that chart? Do you still have it from last week? That one of the statues. Anybody need one? Raise your hand. Mr. Kimberline will chop, chop the piece. Let me have one of those, brother. Now, we're going to look at probably one of the most important prophecies, if not the most accurate prophecy, in your Old Testament today. One of the great things about your Bible is that it tells the future. 3,500 prophecies. The mathematical odds of just 10 of them coming true exactly like they were written down is like 10 to the 80th power, deemed an impossibility. That's like you going along, finding the winning lottery ticket, and doing that every week for a thousand years. Ain't gonna happen. Ain't gonna happen if you find one. Now, last week we looked at in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had a dream. And the reason God gave him that dream was because now the nation Israel was subjugated under Gentile power. And they weren't supposed to be there, but they're there because of their disobedience. God gave them a command before they went in the land and that if they obeyed them, then God would bless them. If they disobeyed them, God would, would chasten them. And he used the Gentile nations to do it. And so the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had was a historical dream in our viewpoint, but it was a future dream in his. That God showed him all the events that would happen from his reign all the way to the reign of Christ in the thousand-year millennial. If you look at that chart, the statue had the head of gold, had a chest and arms made of silver, a belly of brass, and legs that were iron and feet of clay. And the dream was interpreted by Daniel. That was one of God's mouthpieces in Babylon. And that's the great thing to see. Even though God chases his people, he still loves them and he's still there. He's got Jeremiah prophesying in Jerusalem to the older people that could not make the 500-mile journey. You've got Ezekiel prophesying in Babylon, but outside Nebuchadnezzar's court. And you've got Daniel, Sedrach, Meshach, and Abednego prophesying inside Nebuchadnezzar's court. To let the people know that God still loves them and God still has a plan for them and God's going to fulfill his promises that he made to Abraham 600 years earlier. Now, Daniel said, you, O king, are the head of gold, but someone else is going to come up behind you, a more powerful country or nation, and they're going to destroy you and they're going to rule. After that, we're going to see another more powerful nation come up and destroy them, and then you're going to see an empire that's like iron. But it's going to be divided, 
it's going to be iron and clay and it doesn't mix and then you're going to see it divide off into 10 identifiable powers which is representative of the toes in the dream he saw a stone not cut out by human hands that comes and crushes the statue meaning destroying all world governments it lays it to dust it's blown away and then this stone not cut out by human hands grows into a huge mountain and fills the earth and the mountain is representative of, of the kingdom of Christ the rule of Jesus that you will have a government on the planet with one person ruling it and he is both priest and king and that's Jesus Christ that's prophesied in Psalm 110 we see it in Zechariah 610 now the metals in value decrease but strength wise they increase just like the nations Babylonian was a very uh, cultured nation very intelligent into the arts and so forth Medo-Persians not so much but they were stronger militarily the Grecian Empire not as much as the Medo-Persian or the Babylonians but they were stronger and then the Romans they weren't real educated or cultured people but they were a machine that crushed everything then about the third century we saw Constantinople divide it you've got East and West Rome basically and then after that you saw the uh, the Goths and the Huns the barbarians come in and sack Rome and after the third fourth century AD you did not see one world power ever again and you'll see the toes at the bottom of that chart and it's got the names of the, the ten identifiable nations that came from the Roman Empire now according to that dream you're gonna see these ten nations unified and when Christ comes he's gonna destroy them right now you've got these ten nations unified it's called a European Union the stone not cut out by human hands did not come and crush the Roman Empire we saw a delay Jesus Christ came the Jews did not accept him as king therefore he could not set up the kingdom and so he went away as a result he's bringing in the Gentiles when he does come he will crush the governments just like the dream says he'll lay them to dust and he will set up his kingdom and then we will reign with him forever and forever so you see you can look at Daniel chapter 2 and you can go through the book of Revelation you can go through 1st Thess Thessalonians you can go through your entire New Testament the Gospels and you can see that that particular event is expanded upon in the Gospels and in Thessalonians and in Revelation see how smart you are now but it was all mapped out and prophesied before it ever even happened now in Daniel chapter 7 Daniel has a dream let's go there and what he's going to do is reinforce the events that were prophesied about in Nebuchadnezzar's dream but instead of Daniel seeing a statue he is going to see an ocean or a sea and out of this swirling water animals are going to come forth and these animals are going to parallel the dream of the statue watch this 7-1 in the first year of Belshazzar now he's the Medo-Persian king so what we've seen transpire between chapter 2 and 7 is the fulfillment of the Medo-Persian Empire coming in and destroying the Babylonian Empire okay in the first year of Belshazzar king of Babylon Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in his bed he wrote down the substance of the dream well I take that back this hasn't happened yet next chapter you've got Belshazzar who succeeded Nebuchadnezzar 
uh, the Medo-Persian king comes in, goes through the water tunnel, and Belshazzar is destroyed. Okay, so we're right before that. Now Daniel has a dream. He says, I looked, and there before me were four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Now winds in the Old Testament are spirits. The four spirits are winds or horsemen. The sea is symbolic of Gentile nations. All right? Remember that because we're going to see it in the book of Revelation. So whenever you see something coming out of the sea, because we're going to see the Antichrist coming out of the sea, it's out of Gentile nations because the Jewish people didn't eat anything that was off the bottom of the floor of the ocean. When they looked in the ocean, they couldn't see all the way down to the bottom, so it was evil. That was the idea. So evil Gentile nations, you're going to see these beasts coming out of Four great beasts, each different from the other, came up out of the sea, out of the Gentile nations. The first was like a lion, and he had wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and he was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man, and the heart of the man was given to him. Now, this is the story of Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 4, he exalts himself, and he says, Look at this great empire that I have built. And God smites him. He, he strikes him down. He goes insane. His hair on his body grows like the feathers on a bird. And his nails grow like claws. And it says that he eats ox. He eats straw like an ox for seven years. So, the lion is the Babylonian Empire. And if you go there today, the old digs, they've got lions. Winged lions as a symbol for Babylon. He says, you see this winged lion. So he's talking about the Babylonian Empire, specifically King Nebuchadnezzar. He says, I watched until the wings were torn off. That's when he is smoked for seven years. Then it says he was lifted from the ground so that he stood on two feet like a man, and the heart of a man was given to him. After the seven years, it says that he lifted up his eyes, and he said, there is but one God, the God of heaven and earth, the God of Israel, and he was given the heart of a man. That's God reinstating him. Then Belshazzar succeeded him, and then they were destroyed by the Medo-Persians. Verse 5. And there before me was a second beast which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Get up and eat your fill of flesh. That is symbolic of the Medo-Persian Empire. One side of the bear is higher than the other because the Persians were more powerful than the Medes, but they allied, and they went against the Babylonian Empire. And the three ribs represent them tearing up the powers. Now watch this next piece. Now you can follow this on your chart. See, I've got the winged lion and then the bear. And now we're going to see this leopard. Verse 6. After that I looked and there before me was another beast, one that had looked like a leopard, and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. The beast had four heads and it was given authority to rule. After that in my vision, at night I looked and there before me was a fourth beast. Now... This leopard is representative of the Grecian Empire. The reason it has wings is because Alexander the Great conquered the world swiftly in three years. Then he died of syphilis, and his kingdom was divided and was taken over by four of his generals. Ptolemy, Seleucid, uh, Lysimachus, and I forget the other one, Ptolemy. Okay? And so his kingdom, now we can go back and look historically, and everything I'm telling you lines up perfectly. Alexander the Great, three years, took over the Medo-Persians, and then his kingdom was divided into four separate entities with these guys ruling. Now he says a fourth beast comes out. 
terrifying and frightening, very powerful with large iron teeth, and it crushed and devoured its victims, trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. Verse 8. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Okay, you ready for this? The lion is the Babylonian Empire. The bear, the Medo-Persian. The leopard, the Grecian Empire. This fourth beast is symbolic of the Roman Empire. Iron teeth. Remember, the legs are made of iron. It has ten horns. That The legs had ten toes. So we know that they're identifiable nations. Just like the ten toes, this beast parallels those legs and feet. But we've got a little detail that's added here. It says, out of the ten, a little horn sprouts up and it has eyes and a mouth that blasphemes against God. Now, we go to the book of Revelation and we'll find out that this guy is what's called the Antichrist. He is a man and he is going to rise up amidst these ten identifiable nations, which is the European Union right now. So we believe the Antichrist is going to come out of Europe. It says he has eyes, which means intelligence. He knows. And he says he has a mouth that spoke boastfully. Later on in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it's going to say that he proclaims himself to be God. He blasphemes. Now, this is all going to be important because when we get to the book of Revelation, we're going to study this guy and we're going to look at all the things that he does. And I believe that Satan, from this point forward, and every generation of man has had someone that can fit this bill. Because he doesn't know when it's going to happen. He knows the events that will happen. He just does not know the chronological aspect of it, the timing. And so he has had someone ready in every generation. He's got one right now. That if this prophetic clock decides to start up again and start clicking off, then you'll see this Antichrist, this man, rise up out of this European Union. The Bible says he's going to bring about a disillusionment of world peace. He's going to bring a cashless system. He's going to unify us politically, uh, financially, commercially, and religiously. Because we're going to see a religious leader unite with this guy. And see, the world's going to think it's great. The world's going to go, yeah, this is great. Let's forget about our doctrinal differences. Let's all have a pep rally for Jesus. The problem with that is people are going to be going to hell thinking that they're going to heaven. And this guy is going to be a leader. Did you ever see uh, Independence Day? Remember that movie? Where you had this seemingly invincible evil come against the whole planet. And remember the whole planet united. And there was one guy leading everybody. Of course, it was the President of the United States. And they went after this evil, united as a world. Now the whole world's safety and peace is at stake. And they were victorious. Now the only problem with that is the ending of the story just ain't quite right. <laughs> okay, according to the Bible. The only time you're going to see peace on this planet is when the true king comes, that's Jesus Christ. And that's what we saw in the dream, and that's what we're going to see here. Watch this. Verse 9 is going to parallel the stone in chapter 2, not cut out by human hands. He says, As I looked, thrones were set up in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. That's God. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was like wool. Great purity and authority. Wisdom. 
His throne was flaming with fire, that's judgment, and its wheels were all ablaze, and a river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him, and ten thousands times ten thousands stood before him. Those are the angels. And the court was seated, and the books were open. Here come the judge. Okay, that is the that is the great white throne judgment, or that's the judgment at the end of the tribulation period, where Jesus comes and he separates the sheep from the goats. That is when the stone comes and destroys all world governments, and those who are lined up with the high priest who lives to intercede for us, Christ, will be in heaven, and those who are not will be in eternal damnation. It's that simple. Verse 11, he says, And I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking, and I kept looking until the beast was slain and his body was destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. That's what will happen to Satan and all evil. It will eventually be destroyed. God will deal with it. He dealt with it at the cross. He's dealing with it now by using it to shape you and I like Christ, and he'll eventually deal with it completely by throwing Satan and demons and all evil into the lake of fire. Okay. Uh, verse 13 in my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like the son of man coming down with the clouds of heaven he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence and he was given authority glory and sovereign power all peoples nations and men of every language worshipped him his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed you can put a little side note Revelation chapter 19. Jesus coming on a white horse. Written on his thigh is Prince of... Uh, what is it? Prince of Princes, Lord of Lords, King of Kings. Okay? And he's coming and all the saints are behind him. That is us. Now that's a pretty neat prophecy for some 600 years before Christ came the first time. Some 2,600 years before he's coming the second time, maybe even more. We don't know when he's coming. That here are all the world events that will take place from that time forward. And we can look back and we can look in the history books and guess what? Exactly like it was written. That is what has happened. So therefore, these last events, the Antichrist coming up out of the European Union and Jesus coming and destroying all world governments is going to happen. If all these previous prophecies have been fulfilled 100% like they were written, then why should I believe the ones that are still there that have not been fulfilled will not be fulfilled the same way? I'd have to be an idiot, wouldn't I? Now, let me show you the most accurate prophecy in your Old Testament. Go to Daniel chapter 9, and we're going to look at this chart right here. Now, if you still don't have Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel 7, don't worry about it. Give me a call, and I'll go through it with you verse by verse. If you got a little bit of a grip on it, and you think you're okay, keep reading it. But when we get to the book of Revelation, I'm going to be referring back. I'm going to say, remember Daniel chapter 2? Remember the statue? Remember Daniel chapter 7 and the beasts? Well... We know all the events, right? We know the Babylonians are going to be in rule. They're in rule at this time. The Medo-Persians will destroy them. The Grecians will destroy them. And the Roman Empire will come into play. And then they will disperse into ten identifiable nations. We know that the Antichrist will rise up and Jesus is going to come and smash all world governments. What should be our next question? 
We know what's going to happen. What's the next question? When's it going to happen? And that's what Daniel is going to ask God in Daniel chapter 9. Now watch this. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent. Okay, so now the Medo-Persian kingdom is in rule. He was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah, the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Now, in Jeremiah 25, 11, it was prophesied that Israel would go into captivity for 70 years in Babylon. One year for every seven years, they did not let the land rest. Now, God told them, when you go on the land, every seven years... You don't harvest a crop. You let the land rest. Well, for 490 years, they didn't do it. They never obeyed it. And so God put him in captivity for 70 years. Daniel believed his Bible in new prophecy. And so now he's saying, okay, the 70 years is almost up. We've got all these events that are going to take place. Give me some time frame. Give me some time references. So he says, I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition and fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Now look at verse 20. Daniel says, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and making my request to the Lord, my God, for his holy hill. That's the holy city. That's Jerusalem. While I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, He's a messenger angel. He's the one who went to Mary and said that she would be with child and name him Jesus. Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. I wish God would answer one of my prayers like that. I'd be sitting there praying and this angel would just come buzz me. This angel swoops down and lands. And Daniel's probably sitting there and he goes, opens one eye and takes a look at this guy standing there. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to you to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you. I like that. As soon as you, he was in mid-prayer and the answer came. You're going, well, how come God doesn't answer my prayers right away? Well, sometimes he does, but you go to chapter 10 and he's praying again and God doesn't answer it for three weeks because... Gabriel was detained. There was a spiritual battle going on in the heavenlies. He said, I'd have been here three weeks ago, but had a little problem, had a little rumble in the heavenlies. So great. Read chapter 10. Okay? As soon as you begin to pray, an answer was given to you, and I've come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. Now, what he is going to do here, he's going to give him a time period of when all these events are going to take place. He's going to give them the events that are going to be accomplished by the second coming of Christ. And then you and I can look into this little window of prophecy. And we can see the events that will come before this second coming of Jesus happens. Now watch this. He says, 77s are decreed for your people and your holy city. And he's going to list six things. To finish transgression put an end to sin to atone for wickedness bring in everlasting righteousness to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy six events are going to happen he's given him a time period 77 now that hebrew word 
is Shavim. It's a seven-year period. It's a week of years. So what he's saying is there's going to be 70 times seven years. How many years is that? What's seven times seven? 49. Out of zero, 490 years. So we got a time period now. He's saying there's going to be 490 years that are going to click off, and then these six things are going to be accomplished. Now let me ask you a question. He says, number one, to finish transgressions, to put an end to sin and to atone for wickedness. Was that done when Christ came the first time? Say yes. Did he bring in everlasting righteousness? Do we see everlasting righteousness on this planet right now? No, we don't. Have all prophecies been fulfilled? No, they have not. That's to seal up vision and prophecy. And has the most holy place been anointed? That is the temple in Jerusalem. No, it has not. It's not even built yet. So what you see is Jesus Christ in his first coming accomplished the first three. He'll accomplish the second three in the second coming. We've got a time period of 490 years and all these things will be accomplished. What he's going to do in the next few verses is he's going to divide it up for us. Basically, he's going to say 483 years are going to click off and Jesus Christ is going to come. And he's going to accomplish the first three tasks. You're going to have the prophetic clock stop. The ever-ready battery bunny is going to have his battery pulled out and he's going to stop. And then at some point, God's going to plug him back in and he's going to continue that last seven-year period. Okay. Now follow me here. Watch this chart. 25. He says, Know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. So there's the starting point. He says, Great, we got 490 years. When does that start clicking off? Here's the event. You've got an issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Now if you look at your chart on March 5th, 444 B.C. and Nehemiah chapter 2 verses 1 through 8 issued a decree to Nehemiah to go and restore the wall of Jerusalem. So there's our beginning point. He's saying from that point until the anointed one, the ruler, comes. Now who is that? That is Jesus Christ. The word Christ literally means the anointed one. So he's saying from March 5th, 444 B.C until Jesus Christ comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. Okay, now follow me here. Seven times seven is 49. 62 times seven is what? Anybody know? 434, right? Am I right on my map? If you add 434 and 49, what do you have? 483 okay and I'll tell you why he split it like that in just a minute but what he's saying here basically is this no one understand this from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem March 5th 444 BC you and I should be able to count off 483 years and Jesus Christ come good prophecy right look at your chart 483 years is 69 weeks. 69 times 7 is 483. He just told us 
70 times 7 is 490 years. And then all these things will be accomplished. He's saying, let me split it up. 483 years are going to click off. Jesus Christ is going to come. Well, what about the other seven years? We'll talk about it in a minute. But what he just did was he prophesied to the very day of when Jesus Christ would come. Now, Harold Honer, according to the Jewish calendar, which is only 360 years, 360 days a year, calculated this. If you look at it, I've got it written down, 69 times 7 at 360 years is 173, 360 days is 173,880 days. Okay, that's 483 years. At 360 days a year, 483 years according to the Jewish calendar, you've got 173,880 days. On March 30th, A.D. 33, guess who rode in on a donkey and walked into the temple in Jerusalem and proclaimed himself to be the anointed one. I'll give you a hint. They hailed him as King of David. I'll give you another one. He walked on water. Jesus Christ. Now, if you remember the story, and it's great, it's in Luke 19, we don't have time, but you go there and read it. He's going in. He's riding on a donkey, which kings did in times of peace. He's coming to bring peace to the world, just like the Bible says he would. They're laying palms down and throwing down their tunics and so forth, and everybody's screaming, King of David! Because God made a promise to David, one of his descendants would sit upon the Jerusalem throne. And remember what the Jews said? They came up to him and said, Tell your disciples and the people to quit hailing you as King of David, because we don't believe you are. Remember what Jesus said? One of the greatest lines in the Bible. He says, if I tell them to shut up, it won't matter. Because the rocks themselves will cry out and confirm that I am the anointed one, the Messiah. In other words, creation itself will cry out because it was prophesied 173,880 days prior that this would be the very day that I came. Now, he went up and he wept. And then this circular, this cone-shaped stone would go around that millstone and they'd throw the wheat and it would grind it. The upper millstone is the round cone-shaped stone that would go around. In the Old Testament, you see stories of people picking it up and throwing it on somebody's head and crushing them. But the lower millstone, you could never pick it up. It was huge. And the idea here is Babylon is tied to this millstone and thrown into the ocean and is never coming back. The rejoicing is where? It's in heaven. And who is doing the rejoicing? The saints and the prophets and the residents of heaven. But who will never rejoice again? Who will never see a light of a lamp? Who will never have the joys of marriage and families? Who will never enjoy the music of harps and trumpets? The wicked. Now watch this. Here's his last verse. Why is this coming down upon him? One great thing about God is God never pronounces judgment without letting people know why he's doing it. He says, your merchants were the world's great men, but your magic spell, all the nations, were by your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. Some of you will have sorcery. The idea here is they bought into the lie. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, they refused to love the truth, instead believed the lie, and so pierced themselves. Sorcery. The earth and the world has its spell on people. 
that you think, well, I'm wealthy, I'm doing okay here. According to society, I'm a very successful man. We judge administrations, presidential administrations, by how well the economy did while they were in office. And what happens here, what he's saying, is these people have been caught in the spell. They felt, well, I'd rather have like that list in verse 11 and following, my gold, silver, precious jewels, scarlet, linen, cinnamon, and so forth. If I've got those things, I'm okay. It's a deception, and it's a spell that the earth puts on you. It's sorcery. The idea is a, uh, who was it, in the Nordia Chronicles, C.S. Lewis, what he depicted the uh, world as, a witch playing a man mandolin and keeping the world in her spell. Verse 24, In her was found the blood of prophets and of the saints and of all who have been killed on the earth. Meaning all those people who were martyred for their faith. John Huss, who was asked to come down to Bohemia to give his testimony, said, no, I won't come unless you promise you won't kill me. They said, we promise. They said, he said, you promise you won't kill me. We give you our word. He says, you give me your word, yes. So he went down and he gave his testimony of salvation by grace through faith, Jesus Christ alone. They took him and they hung him and killed him. And before they did, he said, I thought you said you'd give me your word. And they said, well, our word is no good. He, no, they said, we will not make good on our word to a heretic. And they killed him. Or Ignatius, who was thrown to the lions. Or John Ridley and Mortimer, before they were burned at the stake, uh, picked up one of the logs and kissed it and said, for tonight we will sup with the Lord. Or the 12,000 Christians that were killed in the massacre at St. Bartholomew in France. Or uh, James, one of the apostles who was run through by the sword. Peter, who was crucified upside down. Paul, who was beheaded. All these saints that John, who was the last apostle, would be thinking about. That is why all these things are coming down. They refuse to love the truth in God's people. And so believe the lie and say, peace and safety, we're okay. Now, I don't have any time, but I wish I did. But I'd show you why and how we're to apply this text to us. Now, if you go back in the Old Testament, Jehu, who was commanded to go and do away with evil underneath the rulership of King Ahab, just went out and was a madman and just started killing everything he could find that was in the house of Ahab. And on his way of doing away with evil, he met a man named Joannadab, who was the father of the Rechabites. Joannadab went up in his chariot with him, and he said, Jehu, come see my zeal for the Lord. Now, here's, it's a funny scene because he's just slaughtered a bunch of Ahab's descendants, and he's going off to get a few more. He's going out to kill a bunch of Baal priests. He's probably got blood all over his chariot and on himself. And uh, you could recognize Jehu. The New York cabbies were called Jehus because Jehu would, would ride like a madman. They would look out from the fortress and they'd see a big dust and cloud. And they'd say, well, who is it? Up oh, must be Jehu. He drives like a madman. He was just like fury. And so here comes Jehu, comes upon this man named Jonadab. And Jehu says, come see my zeal for the Lord. Are you with me or against me? What are you going to say to this guy? Uh, no, I think I'm going to go over here. Now, he jumped up and he went and saw his zeal for the Lord. He killed all these priests. They broke down the altars and the stones of Baal and they used them as a latrine. 
And what Joannadab did was saw what God thinks about the worldly system and evil. And what he did was he went back home to his sons and he developed the tribe or the people, the Rechabites. And these people wouldn't have anything to do with modern cities or wealth. They lived in tents. They wouldn't drink wine. The idea of this text, because basically he saw, he saw Joannadab had saw or he had seen what God will eventually do with all the worldly and earthly things that are evil. And he said to his boys, he says, we're not going to be a part of that. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. You know, I go down uh, on the weekends and disciple these, these men. There's about eight of them. Just about every one of them are millionaires. And uh, they're all real good friends of mine, and I love working with them because they are, and I told them this this weekend. I said, you know, I love you guys. You're my friends, and I come down here because I love the fellowship. But I told them, I said, there's another reason I come down here. I said, because each and every one of you have been put in a great realm of influence that you're around a great many of wealthy people, which are the, some of the hardest people to reach because, you know, they feel like they've, they've got everything. They don't need anything. They cer- certainly don't need God or salvation. And I say one of the greatest things for me is to come down and pour my life into you and to mentor you because I know you're going to go out and take what you learn and try to make an impact in that realm or in that circle that God has put you in. It's a very high-profile pro- high circle with a, a lot of breadth, a lot of people. And I said one of the greatest and encouraging things to me is I look at you men and you're all millionaires. You're all very wealthy, but yet you are unaffected by materialism and worldliness. That every one of them could give it all up tomorrow. And in their business dealings with these people, they hold firm to the word of God. They let their testimony ring out. And there's many opportunities for them to make money dishonestly, but they will not do it. Their word is their bond, and they are a walking light and a living testimony. Because they have an understanding of Lex Telionis. They have an understanding of Revelation chapter 18, where it's all going to end up. All the gold, the silver, the fine linens, and all the materialistic things that men put all their faith and trust in will eventually be gone. And the only rejoicing that you will hear is where? from heaven above, from the saints, the prophets, and those who I'm looking at. Aren't you glad? Next week, we'll look at 19, the establishment of the kingdom. What I'm going to do with you next week is I'm going to give you a timeline. I'm going to give you all the events that have happened up to this time, and I'm going to put them in chronological order for you so you can kind of look at it because it gets kind of confusing from about 19 on. You've got the great white throne judgment, the thousand-year millennial period, the eternal... Uh, heavens and earth, the judgment of Satan, the Antichrist, the political leader. It'll have the rapture on there so you can kind of see where it all goes chronologically. All right? Let me pray for us. Lord, again, we're so thankful that you have not left us here without a word. We see that throughout history. Even in the captivity of your people, you've had Jeremiah and Jerusalem, Ezekiel and Daniel and Babylon. A time of captivity disobedience. You never leave your people without a word. In a time that we live, in a country that has turned its back on you, you've not left us without a word. We have your Bible. It tells us the future, tells us where we've come from and how we're going to get to the where, where you're going to bring us. And I pray that we become these lights that the Bible so commands us to be, and salt to cause people to thirst for righteousness and hunger for it. That you will give us opportunities 
in our realms that you have put us in, in our places of influence, to be those lights. Open the hearts of those whom we love. Lord, let them see the end of what will happen to all things that people here hold precious materialistically. That there is only one true treasure, it's Jesus Christ and the kingdom that he will establish. And there's only one way into that kingdom. Through the belief and the atoning work, the final work of Jesus Christ on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. Lord, we pray that you'll open their hearts. Use us, use whatever means it takes, but bring them to faith. We'll ask it for Christ's name. Amen.